Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Ford is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Episode 224 is here with Nick Huber. This is part two of a conversation that I had with Nick actually on Valentine's Day earlier this year in February. You can listen to part one on episode 209. This was a great conversation. Nick and I always go into a lot of different topics um, and this episode's no different. So thank you for continuing to join me and enjoy the show. I think the uh, somebody said, I want to talk small business. Chris, I know you want to pass over these pretty quickly, but if you were a 25-year-old interested in small business, what would you do right now? I would start a home cleaning service. Um, I think there's so many people who are punting on keeping their homes clean. They've had somebody clean their house. They realize how big of a life, you know, a positive influence on their life it can have. And short-term rentals as an asset class are exploding. I don't know how I feel about short-term rentals. I'm considering making an investment in the area. Um, the cash-on-cash cash returns of short-term rentals are, are eye-popping. I mean, 20, 30, 40% cash-on-cash cash returns. Obviously, there's a lot of risk. You have um, government, you know, political risk. They can outlaw short-term rentals in an entire town. You have competition flooding to the area. You have a shortage of homes. But the hardest thing, in my opinion, about short-term rentals is the operations and the fact that you cannot find cleaners. Finding a reputable company to clean these houses well is very, very hard. So if I were a 25-year-old interested in small business, I would start a home cleaning company, which would morph into an Airbnb management company, which would morph into a real estate play buying, operating, and holding short-term rentals. I think it's a phenomenal business opportunity. If you're willing to do one really hard thing that nobody's willing to do, learn Spanish. If you're willing to learn Spanish and you're willing to learn the ins and outs of the H2B visa program and get people in Mexico, South America, wherever, into the United States with the sole purpose of working for you, with you, to build your cleaning company, you'd have a tremendous competitive advantage. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, if we can pass, but somebody asked that question. I thought I had to answer that one. You answered it well. Let's go to the next one. Okay, you pick. Yeah, why don't we just talk about kind of acquisition strategy, how you're buying your stuff and how I'm buying, how we're thinking about buying some stuff. So um, it, this really can be dialed into, you know, kind of where your target market is and what you're going after. One of the things I've changed my mind about more and more as time has gone on, um, and I think it's easier to do it with smaller assets, like if you're buying a home or a duplex or a few multifamily units, or maybe a small industrial building, like I'm talking about 10,000 square feet or less, literally picking up the phone, calling the owner. 
Um, now, with that being said, our largest deal last year was an $80 million deal, and that was direct with the seller, no brokers involved. But to build a company around that as you move up chain is really difficult. So, and today, again, going back with technology, it's it's very hard to find. To, I guess I've changed my mind on like brokers are, are really beneficial. Um, and some of our best deals we're getting done are with brokers. They're still off market. And maybe the point I wanted to make was, I think the next layer of the game is how do you incentivize brokers to bring you deals before they bring other people deals? And at its most simple form, it's pay them more or give them upside in your deal. You know, people have this large promote in their deal. And if you can just give some points away to the broker, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you can pay them an extra half a point, it makes a lot of sense. If you can take them, if you can afford to take them on a trip and get to know them better or go to dinner with them. But the goal isn't to, to build a thousand great relationships. It's to have a f- two or three really amazing relationships kind of in each submarket. And then the second thing we're doing is what we call acquisition consultants, our deal incentive program. You don't even have to be a real estate broker. We will provide you all the... We, we said internally, how do we use our platform and all of our data to one, understand which buildings we want to buy? So I think it really starts with, here are the 20,000 buildings in Texas that fit Fort's criteria. Now, within that 20,000, how do we create a ranking system so that we're always focusing on the top 500 buildings that, that we would want to go after that have a probability of selling? That is where we've gotten really good. We have built technology that basically has an algorithm that that's constantly processing data saying, this has a good opportunity of selling. We're constantly updating that list when we're updating it with market comps and transactions that happen. And then we're calling these acquisition consultants and saying, look, we're going to give you 20 buildings a month. And your job is to call all of them, their brokers, whomever, report back to us. We're going to pay you extra money. We're going to give you upside in the deal. And you can co-invest alongside if you want. And we are going to build a partnership with you. Um, and these are just random. These are just whoever wants to sign up to do this. No, we, we have a full vetting process. I would, okay. say, I would say 5% of people that sign up with us, we actually partner with. They sign a contract with us. And they're essentially independent contractors of our company. They are under contract with our business to find us deals. If anybody on this call is familiar with how the oil and gas industry works, it's synonymous with like how a landman works with an oil and gas operator. And again, all it to be said, it's our way of saying, this is how we can incentivize more people to bring us a deal. And then the, the, the other side to that is as that works and goes on, if you're somebody that can close, put up hard money day one, you, know, you have a lot more financial wherewithal, you just become more and more attractive. It's its own little flywheel in and of itself. And so maybe you can talk to how you do it. And if anybody in the audience wants to ask a question or two to maybe provide a little more detail, happy to do it. Yeah. What we're finding in self-storage is that like our operations are our biggest benefit. Like we know, we have data on where we can take rents. We have data on what it's going to cost us to operate a building. And many, many times an on-market deal, even if another player is willing to accept lower returns, and pay more for an asset than we are, we can make up for that in operations. We can make up for it in the fact that we can optimize revenue better than they can. So the perfect deals for us, what we've found are in smaller towns without REITs, 
We don't want REITs to be present because REITs find the top of the market with revenue. I'm talking public storage, extra space storage, CubeSmart. So the smaller towns where they don't exist, which is generally 30,000 people or less in a town, that's perfect for us. That means there's not going to be a lot of really uh, institutional players. And yeah, we're happy to buy on market, off market. We do. We underwrite a lot of deals. We have three full-time acquisition folks. And frankly, it goes back to the abundance mindset. Like I do a lot of consulting and tweeting about storage and how to optimize it. I'm telling people real information about how I, I'm opening the books on my business. Hey, this is how we do business. Many of those people have brought us deals to look at. Many of those people have become LPs. Many of those people have uh, bought small portfolios that I think we may end up buying from them when they combine three, four or five properties. So yeah, it's a flywheel, right? The more you close, the better you get at closing. And another big part of it is, hey, we, we're, when we make an offer, we try to show everybody that we're super, super professional when it comes to closing. Okay, when we go under LOI, I'm going to send, our CFO is going to send a quarterbacking email that he's going to lay out the entire process. Hey, here's our attorney. This is what we need to do. This is a rough timeline. As soon as we sign the contract, that's when it's, okay, sending an email to the whole team of, hey, these are the two people who are going to interview the owner. These, this is how our due diligence is going to work. This is when we need to set up our inspections. This is you know, the timeline of which our appraisals will be done. Um, and then title work, You know, this is the closing company. This is who's doing what. Here are the contacts. And you'd be really surprised at how many big groups who close a lot of deals are just running around like chickens with their head cut off. They're closing deals whenever they can close deals. They're not pushing a timeline and they're not super, super organized when it comes to acquisitions. Um, we're building a really good system. I love it. You want to take a question from the audience? Let's do it. So um, what's the biggest mistake you made? This is uh, this was posted at the very beginning of the conversation. What's the biggest mistake each of you made when you're first starting out in real estate, the first 12 to 24 months? Um, I'll go first. I'll give you a second to think about that, Chris. We built a self-storage facility from the ground up. The first big mistake is that we made a $1.7 million budget and spent $2.3 or $2.4 million to build it. That sucked. We had to have a lot of cash. Luckily, we had a business that was spitting some out. And luckily, our LPs understood and ponied up another 20% more money than what they had at first. But that sucked. Luckily, our bankers worked with us. Huge learning lesson, huge mistake. Then we decided to double down on construction and we tried to get two more big self-storage facilities permitted to build, one in Cortland, New York, and one in Utica, New York, both of which failed at the permitting stage. We spent $200,000, two years of my time. I went to 25 plus town meetings. One of them changed the zoning halfway through our process. We'd spent all this money. We had done all these things. They changed the zoning because the people in town didn't want a self-storage facility where it was permitted to be. Um, the other one, we had a big subterranean issue with the land and it was an old landfill that we didn't know about. And when we did our test holes, uh, it was mush and we had to build pedestals. It was a big mess. Anyway, we learned a ton about reasons why I respect and love developers and I'm glad they exist, but I never want to be one. Um, that's about all I got to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say my, my answer is pretty similar. Uh, I wish I'd just started buying instead of developing early on. Um, man, it's been so long to think of that. I was so young at that time, but um, you know, I, I just think the biggest mistake that a lot of people make in general, uh, especially in the world we live in today is it's still an industry where there is no better information than boots on the ground information. And again, you can gather a lot of stuff on the internet and that's great. 
But I would just say the best people I know in the business understand the markets that they're in to the level of be on this side of the street, not that side of the street. You want to be on this corner, not that corner. Oh, that guy across the street's about to move out. And you can only find that out from being talking to brokers on the market, walking, I call it walking the street, sitting in the, you know, sitting at dinners with brokers over long periods of time. And so I'll give it just a more broader answer is um, sure, there's a lot of things you can get on the internet to maybe help give you a quick yes or no on whether you should spend time on a deal. But I've seen all the technology to date and none of it replaces boots on the ground uh, in the streets information. And so, Chris, but what you're saying is not scalable. What you're saying requires a lot of work and what you're saying is hard. Like, that's not what people want to hear. People want to hear that real estate is just Chris Power sitting in Dallas playing golf while his team just goes and buys and does all this successful stuff. They don't want to hear that it actually requires a lot of freaking hard work that doesn't scale. Then it's bad. Then I just have bad news to deliver because uh, <laughs> I, I know a lot of people that are unbelievably successful in this business and they're all in the streets all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you can't get it. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile, and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place you can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information that's s-e-e juniperquare.com and now back to the show let's go with uh how jason said how have you worked to identify buildings that are likely to sell at a high level, we have coded this out and it's an algorithm. But if you just said, uh, if you just took a list of whatever market you're in, the last like 100 buildings that you've sold, that, that sold in the market, you could just create like all these different attributes to the building and just say, hey, you know, Mr. Software Engineer or Coder, go code, like here's what happened. Now let's try and start uh, creating probability scores based on what you're seeing. And I won't go through, I mean, we have 300 and something attributes, but if you thought of some of the most obvious ones, if somebody's owned a building six months, they're probably a lot less likely to sell than somebody's owned it 10 years. Okay, so length of ownership might be one. If they're out of state, uh, that might have an opportunity of why they're more likely to sell. Vacancy. Um, if they have a loan maturing in the next 24 months, maybe that would be a reason they would sell. Um you know, you can go on, co- you can pull data from CoStar and see if their largest lease in the building is expiring in the next 12 months. I'm not saying they will or not, but for someone that maybe hasn't found a backup tenant or 
knows that their their building might go 50% vacant, maybe they might be a more willing seller. If the owners, I mean, this sounds crazy. I, we bought 20, $30 million deals where the owner's at, uh, mailing address is their home, their personal home. If the mailing address is not a commercial mailing address, there might be more likely that they're going to sell. Um, if the current owner inherited it from their family or it's owned by an, a, in a family trust, they might be more likely to spell if there's been an obituary or a death tied to the property. So there's all these things that the internet can scrape. And then it's your job as the owner to say, okay, these things matter in calculating a predictability score. And then it's upon us for it to go, but how much do they matter? How much are we going to weight this one versus this one? So then you build that algorithm and then every property that sells or goes to market, then it's just constantly scraping and learning. And it's not to say that it's right. So there might be some that have a 90% chance of sale that are wrong. And then ones that have a 5% chance of selling that end up selling. But if you update the system over time, it just gets smarter and smarter. So it takes years and years for it to be going. And ours has been going now two or three years. And I would say we've had a lot of success in focusing on the right things. It's again, not an excuse to not be in the streets like I just talked about, but it has, um, you know, it's really worked for us. And so that's how we think about identifying buildings that might be likely to sell. And that's where scale does matter and data yeah. does matter. And yes. it's the same thing in my business. I mean, the more data we get, the more confident we have buying assets. It's not necessarily finding the ones that are more likely to sell. It's the more deals we underwrite, the more deals we buy, the more deals we watch every single month, what happens after we buy, the more data we have yep. and the more, the better decisions we can make on what we're going to buy next. So it's a huge flywheel. Um, Russell Lowry, friend of mine, guy I really respect, met him out in LA at Reconvene. What's the, what's the three highest leverage activities in your business that you do? Um, Chris, you want to go first and I'll, and I'll hop in. Yeah, I would say capital raising, kind of brand awareness through Twitter and the podcast, and then being a steward to our CEO. I'm now the chairman of our company and being a sounding board and someone he can pick up the phone and call anytime. So mine is recruiting people. I spend almost all my time recruiting. If I have a, if I have a job at Bolt Storage that is a core function, then it's a problem because it becomes the bottleneck very quickly. Um, so I'm recruiting people and the fact about building a good team, I mean, it goes back to you convincing me to charge fees so that I can have a profitable management company that can go out and attract great talent. We are in a good business now. We've been blessed with a great 24 months of performance. We have the money and the model built to go out and attract great talent. So now it's my job to go find them and recruit them and get them to come work for me. Almost everybody already has a job that is... Um, out there in our world. So I'm selling them. I'm selling all day. I sell, selling them on our vision, on our mission, on our company and coming to join us. Then, I, then it's training and giving people the tools to succeed. I mean, the, the, the people who are making decisions in our company, I'm constantly asking them, what are you stressed about? What don't you have that you need? And what do you need to be different to do your job even better? And then it's my job to give them that. And then obviously... I'm building new relationships with banks. Um, our primary lender, we're pushing up against um, debt ceilings. Like they're only willing to give us $50 million and we've got 40 million of it out. So we need a new lender stat. So I'm interviewing a ton of banks, trying to figure out which banks we want to work with. It's going really well. Obviously, 
tweet Twitter is a really high leverage activity for me. And, um, you know, negotiating some of the bigger deals, dealing with the brokers and, um, selling even when you're buying, because it's a, it's a seller's market. So me as a buyer, I'm selling bolt storage on people who want to sell their assets. So, um, that's what I do. How do you want to maximize your impact on the world? This is a secondary follow-up uh, question from Russell. Is that measured in dollars or is it measured in something else when it comes to the legacy that we want to uh, leave on the world? And I know this is a really hard question, a good question. Um, I'm at the stage where I'm still trying to figure this out. It's all been a real whirlwind for me. Life is coming at me really fast. I didn't know that I would have this platform of 200,000 followers 18 months ago when I started my work online. Um, I didn't know that I would have this company. And I think the step one to changing the world, unfortunately, is make some money. Everybody wants to change the world. The people who really do change the world have some money. So my goal right now is to kind of build that leverage, right? Learn how to learn how to make money when I have that money. And when I have those resources, hopefully I can be a good steward of it to change the world. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a really tough question to answer. I would say uh, for me, it is at some point, like enough money is enough, but I do believe that... <laughs> If, if you are in business, like you can utilize your talents. If you make more money, I think you can have a larger impact. There's always the debate, you know, who's changing the world more like the one person missionary that's going across the globe and helping, you know, these small groups of people or the billionaire, you know, real estate or not real, you know, business the guy that employs yeah. 10,000 people. And those people send their kids to college and, and they build their families up. I don't have the right answer. I would just say, I think my talents uh, will lend me to maybe the second part. And so it's how do I just impact a lot of people through business? But the second thing for me, um, and we won't make this about you know what I plan on doing in life, but I really believe we have a lot of issues that we can solve here in America. And so anything I am trying to solve will be here in my own backyard. Um, not I'm not trying to, you know, there's plenty of folks that are focused overseas. To me, what matters is our own backyard. I think there's a lot of help and resources we can bring to our own country and the people that I can walk down the street and impact. And that's more important to me, the, the tangibility of it. So that's that. Beautiful. Um, how can I, as a beginner in real estate, buy a property into my LLC? No bank wants to loan to a no history LLC. Quick answer there is you're probably going to have to personally guarantee it. Uh, the second quick answer is it's amazing to me how many people that have never gotten a loan before from a bank just automatically assume that they cannot get a loan from a bank. What I would tell everybody is go call three banks in town, community local banks. Don't call Wells Fargo and Bank of America and Chase and all the big boys. Um, call a local or community bank. And either A, they'll tell you what you are approved up to, or B, they will tell you why you're not approved and give you the, the steps that you might need to take to get approved. Um, you know, and I'll if you're buying, I have a really, yeah, I have a really uh, strong view on this because I was a 25 year old walking around into banks trying to get a loan for my very first deal with no real estate experience at all. And what we did is, okay, yeah, we went to talk to some banks, but we had our shit together, frankly. Like we came in with a a, a packet of ninety pages, um, a full competitor study, all the research we had done on a market, our full resume of history of why we operated a building. We put this documentation in front of a banker, and they said, "This is the most organized real estate ask that we have ever seen here at this bank." And that's why that's one of the reasons why we got the loan. I would suggest going to a banker if you're going to do your very first self storage deal. Show them that you are very, very professional and organized. 
So, okay, yeah, we, uh, Mr. Banker, I want to buy a storage facility. These are our parameters. I'm going to, I'm looking for, you know, underutilized market rents. I'm looking for in these type of markets. Hey, here is an example of exactly a deal that we didn't get, but I'd like to do a dry run with you so that we can feel out a term, so we can feel out getting a term sheet. You provide the bank with the P&Ls they need. You provide the bank with your pro forma through 84 months. You provide the bank with your personal financial statement, all really, really organized in a Dropbox. Then you go into a meeting. What do you think that'll do, Chris? That'll help a little bit, right? Yep. <laughs> you nailed it. I, I would say there is no like written formula to get a loan from a bank. It's not like some algorithm they say you're in or you're not. At a community bank, it's what you just said. It's as much the relationship. It's as much the ability to show you can execute. And again, I got my first loan. Um, I built a million dollar spec home when I was 20 years old. Um, I had never even built a home before, but I had a great relationship with the banker. They had done some other things with me in the past. I put up a CD at the bank. I, you know, I was able to kind of work my way around it, but I, any, I think there's people that think it's just this arbitrary yes or no. And most of the time it's a no, but, or a yes. And there there's things you can do. It's not some algorithm at your community or regional lender. That's like the answer is no. And it's no forever. Um, mm-hmm. And banks, most people, banks have bullshit. Banks have really good bullshit meters, right? They, they can tell who has their stuff together and who doesn't. Right. If, if you act very, very professional and you have your stuff together, a bank will take you seriously. If you're coming in unorganized and saying, I'm thinking about buying this, I'm a dreamer over here, I got these things planned, and you're sitting there unorganized and your conversation's all over the place and you don't have anything to back it up, it's going to be harder to get a loan. Yep. Any closing thoughts? Somebody says, can the minimum investment be lowered to allow unaccredited investors to invest with sweaty startup or Fort Capital? Um, No, the answer is no, unfortunately. Um, We got to be pretty careful about how we raise money, who we raise money from. Um, accredited folks only, definitely. But um, I think that's changing in a way, though, with uh, CrowdStreet and you know some of these other areas that you can look to invest in. It's all a part of the you know thematic demo democraticization of democratization, yeah, democratization of capital. Okay. I think uh, one again. Thank you, everybody, for participating. Uh, these are a lot of fun. Somebody asked a question earlier that just said, what would you be betting on over the next 10 years? I would just leave a hanger saying, I'm more focused right now, not on the asset type specific as I am the markets. I really think we're going through a big shift in America there and the world where states and countries are competing against each other and cities are competing. You see the mayor of you know, Miami's this, you know, he's almost like a, a recruiter now. Um, it's just going to be really interesting. And so I'm more paying attention to where to invest before necessarily just the asset class itself. Um, what I think is a lot of this empty space that shows up, their uh, entrepreneurs in the private markets will take its uh, toll and they'll find ways to use it in ways we've never thought before. So it'll just be really mm-hmm. interesting. And I'm really interested in which markets will succeed and which markets will bounce back and maybe which markets are you know, headed to a long, slow decline. We'll see. That's right. I'm proud to be in America either way. I think what people are dealing with up in Canada is absurd, still being locked down and all the craziness. And our friends in California, their kids are still running around in masks at school, outside at recess. It's absolutely insane. So I, I just feel lucky that I picked a, a, a state that believes in free rights and, and America. We're so lucky to have America. But 
yeah, it's, it's crazy times, man. And you got to be thinking about that when you choose where to invest as well. I agree. All right, buddy. This has been awesome. Thank you, Nick. Thanks. Thanks for the time, Chris. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, we'll post this both on uh, Chris's show and mine possibly. And if you have some feedback, how we can improve, improve or what you want to see from us or just some takeaways, um, tweet us. Tweet at Fort Worth Chris and at Sway Startup. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.